From Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? Tell me, Jill. We give banks our cash and get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital. You know, it makes me sad every time I look at my bank account. Celsius Network is on a mission to change that. With their super easy mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest is paid out every week and there are no fees or penalties ever. If you head over to Celsius and tell them we sent you, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use code GEARS when signing up or go to celsius.network slash GEARS for more information. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com and you can save $300 if you use the promo code GEARS300. Prior to the Civil War, the legal tender in the United States was gold and silver coins, or specie. The war, however, had costs associated with it, and if the Union had any hope of winning, they were going to have to find ways of funding those costs. In 1861, Lincoln and his cabinet started to issue unbacked notes as the government. These notes were supposedly redeemable for gold and silver. These notes, having been issued by the U.S. government and being quote-unquote fully redeemable, they traded at par. They had no discount associated with them. But by the end of the year, however, Lincoln and his men had to suspend redemption of these greenbacks. The value of the notes plummeted. But the war still needed to be funded, and so with the Legal Tender Act, Lincoln issued the first unbacked paper money. This would go on to complicate matters a decade later in 1873. That year was a tumultuous one. One of the biggest U.S. banks at the time, a bank called J. Cook & Company, failed. This was one of the banks that had underwritten the Union's Civil War efforts, and it was also the bank that underwrote much of the Northern Pacific Railway. When that project failed to produce the expected returns, however, the bank found itself strapped and unable to raise more debt to meet its obligations. There was a run on the bank, meaning depositors all showed up at once, demanding their money back. Well, banks don't keep all that cash on hand. They're in the business of making loans with it. This led to widespread panic and a run on several other banks in the process, and a sudden rocket in demand for gold, not greenbacks, not silver, cold, hard gold. So what did President Grant do? He sent General Custer and his men out into Indian territory to look for more gold. 
gold. Love it. So this week, as you may have guessed, we are going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of collateralization, fractional reserve banking, and everyone's favorite no-return crypto asset, Tether. If you follow crypto, you may have heard rumblings over the past few weeks that the New York Attorney General's Office, or the NYAG, has some beef with Tether, Bitfinex, and their affiliated banks. Well, we are here to play a game of Factor FUD on the matter and try to pick it apart. But first, we're going to start with the backstory of how this thing called Tether was created and what the heck it actually does. All right, Tether, this is one of my favorite topics to grind on. So <laughs> I feel like it's going to get emotional, Jill. It's Yeah, it's going to get... It's gonna get uh, this is going to be more of a debate episode, I have a feeling, but... I don't think we agree. Let's kick off with some facts. So, Meltem, do you want to tell us what is Tether? How is it created? How did it come to be? Right. I'm crypto grandma. I always forget that. <laughs> All right. Crypto grandma activated. All right. So... For many of our listeners, you probably don't remember what Bitcoin was like before 2013. Getting money into and out of Bitcoin is still hard, but arguably it's much easier than it was five or six years ago. The question has always been, and the constraint has always been, how do you take dollars, fiat money, and turn it into Bitcoin, especially if the crypto market and the legacy financial system do not connect. So before 2013, my way of getting Bitcoin was called localbitcoins.com and Mt. Gox. You would either meet someone in person to get your Bitcoin, you would wire money to a bank in Japan and hope you got Bitcoin in your wallet in Mt. Gox, or you would go to Bitcoin Faucet, which was a website where you could earn small amounts of Bitcoin. But in 2013, the first regulated exchanges, or really they weren't exchanges at that point, they were just retail brokerage platforms. These first platforms launched here in the US. So in 2013, little baby Meltem, who is in graduate school, would use Coinbase or Circle um, to get Bitcoin. Of course, there were a lot of unregulated exchanges. A lot of us old timers like to joke about the troll box on BTCE and Poloniex, which were crypto to crypto exchanges. But bring back the troll box. The troll box is the best. So much shit talking. <laughs> All right. So there's a company that looked at this problem and said, wait a minute, we could do something. There's this company. Tether Limited, that created a dollarized token. In fact, it was the first token or ERC-20 to ever exist. So let's talk about what that is, because I think it's a pretty amazing story. And I think uh, many people don't appreciate that all of these things like smart contracts and ERC-20 tokens actually happened five years ago. They predated ETH. Totally. They did. Oh, absolutely. Um, So let's talk about who did this and how they did it. So January 2012, There is a Bitcoin enthusiast named J.R. Willett, and he described this idea of building new currencies on top of the Bitcoin protocol. The project he described he called RealCoin, and the idea was that you could allow complex financial tasks on top of Bitcoin, and more importantly, that you could enable quote-unquote smart assets via smart contracts, and the second layer to exist that would really be the capital markets layer for Bitcoin. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is. That idea was later rehashed as ERC-20 tokens on top of Ethereum. 
I digress. This Project RealCoin was renamed and launched in 2014 as MasterCoin. The founders include Brock Pierce, Craig Sellers, and Reeve Collins. And they were all part of an associated entity, the MasterCoin Foundation, which would use the funds from the MasterCoin ICO to promote the use of this new second layer. So really, this this was the first real sort of ICO focused on creating app coins and ERC-20 use cases. And smart contracts and all of this. So the MasterCoin protocol would become the technological foundation of Tether, the cryptocurrency. And the first, quote unquote, tokens for this were issued in October of 2014 via the MasterCoin protocol, but anchored to the Bitcoin blockchain. And this, as Meltem says, is really the precursor to the 2017 ERC-20 token. So in November, these tokens were renamed as Tether as part of a new company, Tether Limited. This is about to get complicated because the leadership of Tether Limited included executives from both MasterCoin and the exchange Bitfinex. Now, at the time, Tether was widely publicized to be backed 100% by its original currency and to be redeemable at any time with no exposure to exchange risk. The company's website stated that it's incorporated in Hong Kong with offices in Switzerland, but the website was pretty short on details. Yes. And so Tether was born. You have to remember at that time, the market for Bitcoin was teeny tiny. It was under $300 million. And so the introduction of these Tethers or this sort of medium of dollar exchange was not really that widely used. Now, what happened in 2015? In January of that year, Bitfinex, which was this exchange, enabled the trading of Tether on their platform for the first time. And they enabled Bitcoin to Tether trade pairs. Representatives from Tether and Bitfinex say the two companies are separate, but if you'll remember from our episode on surveillance capitalism and being cypherpunk, the Paradise Papers, which were leaked in 2017, named Bitfinex officials as responsible for actually setting up the Tether Holdings Limited entity in the BVIs in 2014. And if you go to the Tether website, they actually list Bitfinex executives as also being the executives running Tether. The CEO of both firms is the same person, Jan Ludovicus von der Velde. And it's important to note that Bitfinex is also one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges by volume in the world. So Tether first launched 2014. 2015, it starts trading on Bitfinex against Bitcoin, and volume was really small. By the end of 2015, the market cap for Tether crossed $1 million for the first time. And it's important to remember that that also should mean that at that point in time, there were a million dollars in a bank account somewhere managed by Tether Limited Holdings in the BVIs that backed those million dollars of Tethers in circulation. By the end of 2016, Tether's market cap was around $7 million. End of 2017, Tether exploded, all right? At the end of 2017, we went in one year from $7 million of Tether in circulation to $1.3 billion. That's pretty explosive growth. That's over 100x growth. Um, and today, as of this podcast being recorded, the market cap of Tether sits around $2.3 billion, and on a daily basis, it hovers within a fairly tight range, uh, probably two to $300 million in either direction of that number. 
Yeah. So there's a lot to note there. I mean, the first of which is it's important to remember that those numbers in 2017, what happened to the crypto market in general, it also exploded. And so there's been a lot of talk about how did Tether pull off these numbers? How did it pull off this kind of trajectory? But it's important to put it in context of the overall crypto market. The second thing I want to note around this is much has been made, and I will make much in this episode, around the uh, affiliations between Tether, which is this crypto asset, and Bitfinex, this exchange, right? There are potential conflicts of interest there. There are all kinds of potential for shadiness to go on. But it's important to remember that what Tether and Bitfinex did has effectively become the playbook for crypto exchanges, right? With USDC, we now have a stable coin for Coinbase and Circle. With uh, the Gemini uh, GUSD, we now have a similar thing for Gemini, so on and so forth. This has effectively become the playbook. So if we're going to talk about conflicts of interest and so on, then we need to acknowledge that. Although disclosures and clarity around that and transparency, that might be a whole other matter. Yeah. And the other thing I want to point out that I think is interesting because nothing under the sun is new, right? <laughs> it's all kind of recycled in different ways. Um, so as we talked about just now, Tether was originally built on top of MasterCoin, one of the first ICOs, which later rebranded to Omni. Omni today has a market cap of about $2 million. It's basically a zombie coin. Here is a great example of value not accruing at the protocol layer, but in the instrument itself. And I think this will teach us a very important lesson about the future of Ethereum and the tokens issued on top of it. At the peak of cryptomania, Omni only reached at its peak point a $50 million market cap. However, Tether, which is issued using Omni, is worth billions of dollars. So again, we look at the Ethereum protocol and we look at all of the tokens built on top of it, this whole idea of value accruing to the protocol layer. I think the Tether-Omni relationship is an interesting counterpoint. And I will say, because we're all about nuance, it is important to note that ultimately Omni is anchored to the security of the Bitcoin network. But I think it's just an interesting observation about these relationships that we don't really examine carefully enough when we talk about these things. That's so true. It's actually a great refutation of the whole kind of fat protocol theory that has fallen somewhat out of favor today, although I still hear people cite it. But as of about a year ago, it was still sort of the just accepted truth of how value would accrue. And if you looked at the facts of this, it looks completely different. Yep. And um, the other point, which I think you raised, Jill, with the exchanges using this idea of tether or a collateralized dollar as the playbook, it's also important to note that this protocol, multi-protocol issuance model was also pioneered by tether. So today there are actually, what people don't recognize, there are two constructions of tether. There's a Omni Bitcoin implementation of Tether, and there's an ERC-20 version of Tether. And now Tether's also been talking to Tron about issuing Tron-based Tethers. So Tether was originally created to use the Bitcoin network as its transport protocol, leveraging this Omni layer protocol. And the traditional original version of Tether uses the stability of the Bitcoin network because it's the most secure, sort of longest established 
blockchain network. Then uh, Ethereum-based or ERC-20-based Tether was introduced. It's a newer transport layer and allows Tether to be available against Ethereum smart contracts. So what that means is that as a standard ERC-20 token, you can now trade Tether with any Ethereum address. And what's important to note is when users are sending Tether, they need to differentiate as to whether they're using Bitcoin Tether, Ether Tether, in the future Tron Tether, or really every protocol could have its own version of Tether. Right. And so there's an interesting point to be made around interoperability with this, right? So we talked a lot about interoperability in episode 13, where we discussed the Cosmos Bitcoin hub and so on. But so Tether is really acting as another such bridge to enable digitized dollars to enter the crypto ecosystem. Yep. And theoretically, here's how a Tether works, just to finish up the section on what Tether is, how it works, because I think, again, context and understanding how this all happened is important. And this might be the end of our agreement for the course of this episode. (laughs) We'll see. I think a lot of times we end up agreeing, Jill. (laughs) Like, we think we disagree, but then we delve into the details and we realize, in large part, we are saying the same thing. We may disagree on the specifics of how things- nuance. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you say? Uh, short something, long nuance? Uh, short the clickbait, long long the nuance. Oh, you're not fudding. <laughs> so here's how Tether actually works, because you might ask, okay, well, how did $2.3 billion get to this point? All right. So to create a Tether, someone needs to get US dollars into the crypto ecosystem. What they do is they go to this entity, Tether. Um, holdings limited in the BBIs, and they give them US dollars, and that entity gives them back an equal amount of tether, right? So I put in a million dollars of money and I get a million tethers out. At any time, any of these holders of tethers should be able to redeem the tether for the dollar. And in this sense, tether is kind of like a depository receipt. A depository receipt is an asset that's considered very low risk, highly liquid in traditional markets, where a deposit receipt entitles you to claim the corresponding deposit at a bank or financial services firm. But what's important to note about tethers is there is a very active secondary market for tethers. So the ability for someone to reimburse their tethers they hold for dollars from this Tether Holdings Limited entity is dependent on meeting the terms and conditions of the Tether service agreement, which we'll talk about later. Given that Tether has an active and really liquid secondary market, most people opt to not redeem the Tether they have, but to trade it for other assets. Again, the Tether trade pair is the most common trade pair on many exchanges, and in particular, the Bitcoin to Tether trade market is actually actually bigger than the Bitcoin to USD market. Important to know. And this is why Tether and other stable coins, by the way, don't always have a price of $1. The price of the stable coin in the secondary market is going to fluctuate based on the market sentiment about the redeemability of that Tether when it goes to its holder of last resort and the need for cash in the system. So these are just important notes about how tethers actually get put into the system and the difference between primary issuance markets and secondary markets where these assets trade once issued. Okay, so let's now dive into how tether is actually used. Because even I, and you'll discover over the course of this episode, I'm actually kind of a huge tether hater. Even I have use for it. Even I find it to be a very important utility for the crypto ecosystem. So first, let's start with why do people hold U.S. dollars? 
It's because the U.S. dollar is backed by the strength of the U.S. economy and governance system and laws and ability to protect its borders and so on and so forth, which is what makes the U.S. credible and credit worthy. The U.S. dollar is highly exchangeable and it's deeply liquid. If you want to hear more about liquidity, listen to some of our other episodes. <laughs> we have an episode for everything, Jill. We do. We're getting there. It's- We are. We are. All right. So Tether was originally created to solve a few problems in crypto markets. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about five today. And there are probably more that we could come up with, but these are the five we think are the most interesting. So I'll start us off, Jill. Sound good? Take it away. All right. So the first is a synthetic US dollar trade pair. So again, as we've talked about in many of our past episodes, and as you as our listeners probably know well, the biggest friction point in crypto markets today is the lack of connectivity between the legacy financial market and the US dollar-based correspondent banking system and Bitcoin markets. These things are fairly unconnected. Even the futures that are traded today in the US market, at least by major exchanges, are not physically settled in Bitcoin. They're cash settled. They're synthetic. I will never get over that as like the most ironic thing in the Bitcoin blockchain world. Oh, just wait until E-Trade launches its product. It's going to be synthetic. There's no (laughs) way that people can create a one-to-one linkage. And yet all of these people still want to use a blockchain for their security settlement. Of course. Of course, Jill. The the thing is, you need a synthetic US dollar trade pair. And actually, this is why JP Morgan coin was created. If you read um, the fine print and if you start to think about the idea that you have these contracts that are blockchain-based that settle on a blockchain, there is no settlement layer um, in the correspondent banking system that connects to a blockchain. So JP Morgan realized is they had to create a blockchain-based asset in which to settle, hence the idea of a JP Morgan coin, which is basically, in for all intents and purposes, it's just a synthetic US dollar on the same settlement network as the contract itself. So think about that. Similarly, Tether provided the first synthetic US dollar trade pair in places where there was no US dollar liquidity, say a crypto-to-crypto exchange, right? If you're on Poloniex, if you're on BTCE, if you're, you know, old timer, um, or if you're on an exchange, say, in a jurisdiction where there aren't US dollar denominated bank accounts, you need a synthetic US dollar trade pair. Enter Tether. The second one is the speed of settlement. And this, again, goes back to the lack of connectivity between markets at the settlement layer, right? So if Jill and I make a Bitcoin trade today, we can do execution off chain. So Jill, I'm going to send you a Bitcoin, uh, sell you a Bitcoin for $5,000. Do you agree? Yeah, it's fine by me. All right. So we just executed the trade. No blockchain needed, no exchange needed. We agreed. Now we have to log that trade somewhere and clear it, step one. And that's typically done within internal systems. And then we have to settle the trade. Settling the trade means Jill's going to send me $5,000 and I'm going to send her one Bitcoin. Jill, how long do you think it would take for you to send me $5,000 right now? Like three days. It's a huge pain. Three days, right? Because I think Venmo has a $2,000 limit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've I've actually done Bitcoin trades via Venmo. It doesn't work. Not at these no. prices anyway. Um, it does not work. No. And so again, the speed of settlement is really important. If Jill and I want to settle in real time, um, because we can move our Bitcoin in real time, we want an instrument that allows us to settle instantaneously or close to instantaneously on the same network where the trade happened. And Tether enables this via Bitcoin and Ether and more of these on-chain settlement mechanisms via Tether are being created, hence the Tron partnership. So all of that's really well and good. There's a lot of sort of 
technical reasons why this is all really interesting. But for me, the most interesting use of Tether is just to me as a trader, right? So I want liquidity into US dollars, uh, both on my sort of primary main exchange, but then also across exchanges, right? If I'm trying to do some kind of arbitrage of one exchange to another, so on and so forth, I need to be able to exchange both my crypt trade my crypto for US dollars or US dollars equivalent. And then I also want to be able to move my funds across all of these exchanges in the crypto space, which basically act today as these very siloed systems. Sometimes they have different prices happening. Uh, sometimes they have different pros and cons and benefits. Uh, they often have very different risk profiles. So I might not want my money sitting on the exchange that's giving me the best price. I need to move it back and forth. Tether is a really great way of doing that, actually. Um, much better in many ways than than trying to use something like Bitcoin. So that's that's yet another use of this. And the fourth that I want to talk about is volatility. So many traders can't touch fiat, right? And so they might opt to store their crypto in Tether at times of high volatility. You don't want to cash all the way back out into your local fiat, but you do want to have some store of value to be able to go sort of quote unquote long cash in times of extreme vol or if you think that we're entering another downturn. So that's yet another really important use case of Tether for traders. Likewise, regulatory events where bank access is cut off could also result in increased demand for Tether on some of these exchanges where these things actually do happen quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So, And I think the point yeah. there on that fifth point around regulation, here's what's interesting to me. So as we talked about, once the Tether has been issued um, via this mechanism of paying in dollars and getting out Tethers, there's they're in the second market, right? They can be exchanged anywhere with very few limitations. Which you can't most, say for most of the newer ones, right? Exactly. And I, there have been some great Twitter threads about this where people have um, bought CUSD or the Circle stablecoin um, that has a consortium with other regulated exchanges, and they haven't been able to get their money back out because there are only a small handful of approved venues where these regulation heavy sort of stable coins can be traded. So to me, this is like printing a dollar and saying you can only redeem it at two locations. Or here's an example that I'm familiar with. It's like having a gift card for a store that has no online presence and one brick and mortar location that's nowhere close to where you live. Oh man. Isn't that a pain? You're like, oh, I have this $100 gift card, but the store is in, you know, somewhere in Boston where you're from and my in-laws are, right? How do, how do I get to Boston to use this gift card? I can't use this gift card. Get on so the Amtrak, really, baby. I don't really Four want and a half hours card. later, you may or may not have gotten there. <laughs> and so, but here's the thing. That's why you have secondary markets where people sell gift cards for a discount because they can't use the gift card. So they're happy to sell for a discount. It comes back in a way to this issue of interoperability. And part of interoperability is the regulatory regime or jurisdiction that you're in. That that creates silos, right? And Tether is one of the few things that can move across these silos pretty well today. But I do want to grind for a second on this issue of redeemability, right? Because there were questions around this. Now, Tether's site reads as follows, although it's changed over time. All tethers are pegged at one-to-one -one with a matching fiat currency. 
i.e. one USDT equals one US dollar, and are backed 100% by Tether's reserves. As a fully transparent company, haha, we publish a daily record of our bank balances and the value of our reserves. Tether's can Hold be- Hold on, wait, wait. Yeah. They don't say what the reserves are. And as we've <laughs> talked about before, there is this line item on a balance sheet called cash and cash equivalents. Yeah. And reserves don't always mean- cold, hard cash. Reserves means cash and cash equivalents. Cash equivalents, according to IFRS, which is the International Accounting Standard, and Basel III, which is the bank regulation standard, could be many things, including, by the way, gold. Sorry, Jill, continue. So the the, the rest of the site reads, tethers can be securely stored, sent, and received across the blockchain and are redeemable for cash, the underlying pegged asset, pursuant to Tether Limited's terms of service. Yep. And what are those terms of service? We're (laughs) going to talk about that. There's also a note from the site that I want to make that goes back to the point we were making around compliance and regulation. So let me just read this really briefly. Tether is committed to operating in a secure and transparent way while adhering to all government compliance and regulations. This includes the regulations and economic sanctions that prohibit transactions from persons and entities connected to certain high-risk jurisdictions. These include Cuba, the Democratic Republic of Korea, i.e. North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, Syria, Venezuela, and Crimea. Verified users' access to the Tether platform will be restricted while they are in these jurisdictions. U.S. persons are also restricted from using the Tether platform unless they are eligible contract participants or ECPs pursuant to U.S. law. There's a lot going on in all of this. There's a lot that I want to grind on here. (laughs) Okay, but look, Jill, here's the key point I want to make. We're talking about the primary market for Tether issuance. We're not talking about the secondary market. Like the gift card example, once I go to a store and I buy a gift card, I don't sign a form or give anyone my social security number when I buy a gift card, right? This is why gift cards are one of the most commonly used mechanisms for financial fraud and crime and money laundering. People go and they buy gift cards. And once you have a gift card, it is a liquid near cash equivalent with a slight liquidity discount that you may take if you sell it on a secondary marketplace. But there's no way to track what someone does with the tether really once it's been printed until the time that someone tries to redeem it. That's right. And that's what's not the case for a lot of these other more regulated stable coins that have come out of late. But so to me, I mean, there's just, there's a lot that is contradictory here in the sense that, okay, maybe, maybe this is a good thing. We can debate about that separately, whether or not we want people in North Korea and Iran and Pakistan to be able to use Tether that's a separate question. But for Tether to claim that they're adhering to all government compliance and regulations and so on, like... Oh, but hold on, Jill. Wait, you're a fan of DeFi, right? What sure. are the restrictions that limit the trading of DAI? Uh, well, it depends on the exchange that you're using and, and all of these other things. But, but I mean, re- theoretically, but real- it's an open, decentralized asset, right? Right. So once a DAI has been created, right, through collateralizing Ether in a CDP, there's a secondary market and you cannot control what happens to that DAI. As far as I know, DAI is not claiming 
to be adhering to all government compliance and regulations and that people in Cuba and North Korea and Iran <laughs> okay. Pakistan are not allowed but to but use hold that. On. What what grinds my gears here genuinely is the difference between what Tether is claiming what they can actually prove and then what they're actually doing in reality. And that goes for both the redeemability section and also this whole section on government compliance and regulations. I don't want to go all the way down this rabbit hole though yet, because I know that we're going to reserve a lot of this for the end. We're going to get there. Okay. The second thing um, here around why Tether exists, I want to bring up a topic that actually um, also comes from kind of this idea of fat protocols and value crewing at the protocol layer, which is the velocity theory of money. So Jill, oh do you want to talk about this? Um, let me tee it up and then you can, we can get into it. Cool. cool. So I want to talk quickly about the velocity of Tether. Velocity is a metric that's derived by taking the market cap of something as well as the daily traded volume and dividing them to find how many times that asset changes hands in a given day. So the daily volume of Tether changing hands ranges anywhere from $2 billion to supposedly yesterday, according to CoinMarketCap, $10 billion, wow. which means the velocity of a Tether yesterday was five. You take $10 billion traded, $2 billion roughly in circulation, you get a Tether changing hands five times in a 24-hour period. So the velocity of Tether is typically greater than one time per day. And the velocity of money, right, in a sort of traditional economic context is the frequency at which one unit of currency is used to purchase domestically purchased goods and services within a given time period. It's the number of times a dollar is spent to buy goods and services per unit of time. So do you want to talk quickly about um, MV equals PQ, Jill? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you guys have probably seen this uh, this equation thrown around, MV equals PQ. Um, I think that there's a lot of confusion around it. I think that there's a lot of confusion around velocity of money in general. One thing well, that I want to It's very out, debated, right? It's a hot topic in economics. Totally, totally. And one thing I want to point out here before I get into the equation is that what you just said, $1 is spent to buy goods and services. A tether is being used to buy, you know, other cryptocurrencies and day trade in general, as far as I know. So that's just an important nuance here to keep in mind versus what I, traditional economists will say. I disagree. But, tether okay. is providing a settlement purpose. It's providing a service in the sense that it's providing the ability to settle. Sure. I mean, you could say that about U.S. dollars, though, too. Sure. Right? That you know, if you're speculating against the U.S. dollar, but but it does provide a utility. <laughs> and so I, I object to the idea that look, it might be speculative trading, right? But the majority of the value that's been created in the venture backed firms has been driven by speculative trading of cryptocurrencies. Like, let's not have any pretenses here, please. I'll, I'll concede this point. I'm not going to die on this hill. We've got miles to go. <laughs> but so, okay, back to the velocity of money. It provides a perspective on money demand, right? So looking at Tether's velocity at any given time, it provides us with insights on the demand for cryptocurrency trading activity. So again, you've probably heard of this equation, MV equals PQ, which is called the quantity theory of money. And it comes from something called monetarism, also called the Chicago School of Economics, which was popularized by Milton Friedman. This school of economic thought holds that the money supply is the main determinant of economic activity. So in other words, if the money supply is growing, the economy will grow. And if the money supply growth is accelerating, so will economic growth. 
And by the way, in most ICO models or token-driven models, um, a lot of the modeling, quote-unquote, on the future value of this token is dependent on a rate of inflation, right? And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of experiments being conducted with how inflation will be determined through things like staking or minting of new coins. But there is, um, again, I find this so interesting. We're basically reinventing the last 150 years of economics, monetary policy, monetary theory. What's pretty cool, though, is we're getting to see experiments on it play out in real time. Like Agreed. suddenly yep. we have a lab for this stuff, which we've never For MV before. equals PQ. Yeah. But so, okay, what is MV equals PQ? M is the money supply. V is the velocity, or as Meltem defined, the number of times per year the average dollar is spent. P is the prices of goods and services. And finally, Q is the quantity of goods and services. So the equation suggests that if V is constant and the monetary supply is increasing, there must be an increase in either Q, the quantity of goods and services, or P, the price of them. So accordingly, monetary policy policymakers can control inflation by allowing the money supply to grow no faster than the desired rate of economic growth, or Q. And the reason I think MV equals PQ is interesting, it's a way to try to quantify how these new monetary systems might work, the role that variables like inflation may play. And this is the reason why people spend so much time on quote-unquote ecosystem. They're trying to drive Q, the quantity of goods and services consumed in that native currency, right? That's right. And and so um, this to me, it's a side note for everyone, but I know that it gets thrown around a lot and I just wanted to give some context as to why it matters, why we talk about it. But let's put it in the context of Tether. So Jill and I have talked a lot in past episodes about what creates liquidity. And if you've been reading uh, other finance blogs or other crypto blogs, you will notice a lot of people are talking about liquidity. What defines liquidity is marketability and saleability of a security, right? This really, really matters. And in fact, if you look at many of these security token offerings, they rely on exempt offerings via these regulations called Reg D, typically, which allow for private placements. And exempt securities, it's important to note, are not marketable and they're not saleable, hence not very liquid. So prices in the market for Tether right? They reflect this demand for Tether, the volume growth of Tether reflects the market's desire for this asset, which is in fact highly marketable and highly saleable. And I want to put numbers to it. Again, I'm going to use CoinMarketCap here. Hit me with the numbers, Melton. This is why I love you. I'm such a loser. (laughs) Melton literally Um, spent Saturday night just like number crunching Tether's velocity. I love this. But it's important. Totally. Uh, Totally. So take it away. Share it with us. Okay. Okay. And I'll put this chart um, in the show notes so you can check those out on Medium. So I want to talk about five key um, stable coins. And because, and again, we're a little bit ignoring um, Asia and the rest of the world here. And Asia really is where the majority of crypto trading happens. We're going to talk about the US right now because it's most relevant to, I think, the Tether FUD. Um, So there are five stable coins that matter right now in the exchange context. Tether, USDC issued by Circle as part of a consortium called Center that includes Coinbase, so USDC. True USD, which is issued by an independent entity that is also issuing other asset-backed assets, securities, True USD. Paxos, 
from ItBit slash Paxos, um, Chad Cascarilla and Emil Woods' company uh, in New York that also has the OTC desk ItBit. And then uh, the the Winklevi brothers, their exchange Gemini has its own Gemini dollar. So those are the five we'll talk about. Okay. So in terms of market cap, Tether has the largest market cap by five, uh, 2.8. Factor 10, sorry. Um, So Tether today has a market cap of $2.8 billion, roughly, right? USDC, the next biggest stable coin, has a market cap of around $300 million. Right, so it's one tenth of the size of Tether, um, and that's only because I think of the the Coinbase relationship. True USDT, USD around two hundred million, Paxos around one hundred thirty million, Gemini dollars the smallest at around fifty million. Now, Melton, can but, I hop in for one second? Yeah, please. So I just want to give a disclaimer because we've we've ground on this in the past, right, about data fidelity in the crypto space, and in particular yes. around market cap. Now. These are fairly liquid assets, actually. And so I think that the data fidelity here is much higher than a lot of assets that are, say, in the potato fund. But that said, there are all of these allegations still getting thrown around about exchanges faking volumes, things like this. And so there is a disclaimer to be made about these numbers that, like, this is the best we can do, but we're not really sure. Would you say that's fair? Um, yes, to some extent. Um, but I do think here again, because most of these are audited and published reports that are signed off on by third party audit firms who then become legally liable and can be sued and be liable for those damages. I would say because these numbers are audited, I tend to give them more validity. Yeah. Because there's no way for sure. Yeah. There's no way a big four accounting firm, like there's no way Ernst and Young or Accenture or Deloitte is going to sign off on these audited numbers. Tell them to Arthur Anderson. (laughs) Well, yeah, very true. That's a whole, I mean, this is such a complex topic, which again, we haven't even talked about accounting fraud yet, um, which is prevalent everywhere. Yeah. But look, I, I tend to believe, you know, when a big four, consulting or accounting firm, sorry, signs off on these numbers, they are taking on the liability of the correctness of that number. And so there's a lot of at stake here if they're not right. So I tend to trust it. I don't want to pull you off course though. I want you to continue, continue to take me down the stable coin rabbit hole. Okay. So market cap, fine. That's how much of this stuff has been created or issued. But the number that really matters for stablecoin, again, this goes back to why a US dollar exists and why people want it. It's volume. How much is this thing actually used? And once we know market cap and volume, we can derive velocity, right? Simple division. So here's where it gets really fascinating. In the last 24 hours, here's the volume of these five stable coins, right? Tether, 10.5 billion for velocity of close to four. Okay, so Tether has a very high velocity. Now, again, a lot of that volume could be faked, but look, Again, it's context here. USDC, the circle stable coin, 300 million in circulation, volume of around uh, 50 million traded in the last 24 hours. Its velocity is 0.15. That means one USDC changes hands roughly every seven days. So people are tending to hold this, or in fact, in the case of USDC, most of it's held by investors. 
That's right. It's totally different use cases, right? Totally different. True USD velocity is around 0.27, meaning one true USD changes hands once every four days. Paxis is a little bit higher on volume side. So its velocity is around um, one every two days or 0.5. And then the Gemini dollar is around 0.3. But really the important point here is of the stable coins, Tether is the only one that has a velocity over one. On an daily today is an anomaly, right? Right now, tether is an anomaly. A lot of tether trading, a lot of tether changing hands. But in general, it's around one. You said right, which is yeah, it's around one. I mean, that's way more than the others. What USDC is exactly, and so again, it's really important when we look at this market to understand why people are using this thing, why people are using tether. You can create all of the regulated stable coins in the world, I believe so long as the crypto market continues to be inefficient and not connected to the legacy market and not connected, period, Tether is going to continue to dominate. All right. So let's talk for a minute about why collateralization matters. You mentioned earlier this notion of depository receipts, where you have an instrument that's backed one-to-one with an asset that's being held in a vault or at a bank or at some other, usually institution, that's redeemable. That's a depository receipt. There's also another type of asset, usually called a note, where the bearer of the asset is actually assuming the credit risk of the issuer. So this can be a bond, it can be a short-term debt note, anything like this. It can also be, by the way, um, an ETN, right? So mm-hmm. at CoinShares, our products technically are ETNs. They're exchange-traded notes where each note entitles people to something. Um, and we don't have to collateralize the note. We actually do, obviously, because we don't want to be short Bitcoin. Um, But I think that there is this interesting concept. The difference between a note and a receipt or something that is backed is fundamentally different. And this is where this idea of credit risk that you and I have talked about in episode eight and episode nine on both uh, corporate credit as well as um, country credit, right? Sovereign credit worthiness is really important. That's right. And so it's really important to note, too, the difference in how these things get thought about and get priced and get traded. Because in the case of a note, usually, again, you're explicitly taking on some credit risk of the issuer. And so therefore, a note usually will have some kind of interest associated with it. And it'll usually trade at a discount to the value that the issuer of the instrument is claiming is backing it. Again, whether that's their own uh, you know, corporate well-being, whether that's the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, although that tends to trade obviously much closer to par, um, or whatever it is, it will usually trade at some kind of a discount or fluctuate around some kind of a discount depending on the perceived risk and also what the interest it bears is. So here, hold on, on the price topic, so I'm going to go back to the data. The five um, stable coins we talked about, let's talk about what their price is right now following this Tether news that got dropped a few days ago. Which we'll get into in a minute, yeah. Tether's trading at a slight discount, 0.9928 USDC and all the other stable coins are trading at a slight premium, $1.02, $1.03, and then the Gemini dollar is trading at par. But again, important to note, typically Tether trades at par or sometimes even slightly above. But the value of these stable coins, their secondary market trading price does fluctuate slightly 
depending on the level of confidence in the backing of these notes or these instruments. And so these prices would suggest that these things are less like notes where the bearer is assuming credit risk and more like depository receipts, right? Where there's a one-to-one backing. Depository receipts generally tend to trade closer to par. Now, What's important to consider, though, here is that even depository receipts will sometimes trade below that one-to-one backing, in particular if there are questions around fraud, if there are questions around how trustworthy that institution that is custodying the collateral really is. And I would argue that in the case of Heather, (laughs) in the case of a lot of these things, actually, to be honest... The backing could be called into question. You know, most of the others have had the sort of big four accounting sort of, you know, involvement, right? Yeah. Um, or, or if not the big four themselves, then sort of competitors of similar cal- caliber who are mm. taking on, as you mentioned, Meltem, that legal risk of putting their stamp of approval on it and saying, okay, you know, the money is really actually truly there. Mm-hmm. Now with Tether, there's been a lot of talk for a very long time about where are the uh, where are the accountants who can put the stamp on there. And Tether went through this whole process of hiring an accounting firm who then pulled out of working with them right. for reasons that the accounting firm wouldn't talk about for sort of client confidentiality. The folks around Tether claimed that they just got spooked because they were working with a cryptocurrency. The money is really all there. This was one, we've talked a lot about how there's this recurring theme of Tether FUD. This has been one theme of it, right? Is it whether or not the money is actually there because they've yet to produce the audited report to okay. the general public. But I also want to take the other side of this. There's also another important observation here. All of the other stable coins that have been audited by the big four are backed by big U.S. venture firms and big U.S. institutions. These and they are, have bank accounts at big U.S. banks as far as These are people, right? Everyone around the table has an incentive for them to succeed because there are a lot of powerful, powerful people who own stakes in these businesses. They have that sh- veneer of credibility that is granted by the gods in Silicon Valley and the gods in New York City because they are part of that group. Tether, it's a bunch of people who are outside of that group, right? They are in banking- part because they started this back in 20, 2013, right? Exactly. But I think, again, there is also this element um, that we can ignore, whether it's cultural relativity, whether it's sort of looking at the way people choose to speak about things differently, even though they're the same in many ways. Like There is this aspect I want to talk about, By the way, this also happens with equities on Wall Street, right? There are a bunch of companies that probably do not stand up to the scrutiny of accountants. Um, This came up with Theranos, right? Theranos, in a lot of ways, was a downright scam, but they were never audited because people just believed it because Henry Kissinger was involved and all these credible people were involved. I think, again, there is also this um, this bias that applies when people look at the halo effect. Exactly. Bitfinex based in Asia, they're this crypto to crypto exchange. Um, They have, by the way, the majority of trading volume, right? They're 
far larger and far more profitable than any of these other companies. So I don't want to forget about some of the stuff that goes on here behind the scenes. There is incentive for people to say certain things, and there is an incentive for people to position things certain way. And I'm not by any means saying that these issues we point out around Tether do not exist. But I also do want to point out that being an entity in Hong Kong or in Singapore and the BVIs is very different from being a venture-backed sort of blessed blue chip entity in the US where your founders are also billionaires. By the way, Circle's founders, Ipit's founders, and Gemini's founders, they're well-known billionaires. They were wealthy before cryptocurrency. But Milton, are you saying though that that credibility that firms like Gemini and Circle and so on get over Bitfinex, are you saying that that's unwarranted? Because to me, that credibility is there for a reason. Like These are people who are very much out in the public, have a lot to lose, whether we're talking about the investors or the founders, if things go wrong. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I am just pointing out that there. this is a complex matter, right? And I don't sure. want to ignore the fact that there are some remarkable differences here in terms of how things are spoken about and positioned. I think some entities are given the benefit of the doubt, and they have also produced reports and accounting statements, et cetera. But I don't want to, by any means, um, say that that should be always trusted. I think there totally. have been plenty of instances where highly credible people have done things, whether intentionally or sometimes actually not intentionally, just through negligence or lack of knowing. Um, That's I just totally want to point it out. That's totally you know, you know how I am. I'm always rooting for the underdog. And I personally, <laughs> I think Bifinex and Tether are the primary reason that crypto markets are even where they are today. And we could debate that as well. Look, we're Bitcoiners. We're all about don't trust verify, right? Ugh. And so so oh, no, everyone who is raging about with this Tether is their massive is that you can't verify. You can't verify that it's backed and yet it continues to trade as if it's a depository receipt. Trading at 99.8 cents on the dollar when there are this many questions, that is absurd. Even banknotes don't do that. Even But why do you even care JP so Morgan's short-term debt doesn't trade that well, right? But wait, because hold on, hold on. But why? this is what I don't get, right? So everyone claims to be a Bitcoiner and to be about money's free speech and you know privacy and financial transactions and permissionless financial innovation. This is what you claim. Yet everyone, what I what I love observing is every time this tether stuff comes around, all of these like hardcore Bitcoiners are screaming at the top of their lungs, like proof of reserve, show us this audited financial statement, show us your bank accounts. I'm sorry, that is the opposite of the point. How is that the opposite of the point? Okay. You know what else, by the way, though? Bitcoin maximalists start screaming as soon as the Tether FUD comes around. Oh, so Tether is just the same as like every big New York bank. Like, you know, why is everyone making such a big deal out of this? We'll, we'll get to that. Like, yeah, because it's not. It's the not hypocrisy at all. is insane. Suddenly every Bitcoin maximalist libertarian is screaming that, oh, you know, this should be, this should be okay because the banks do it. Oh, look, and that's never the right excuse, right? That's like the excuse like, oh, we only money laundered a little bit. Whereas, you know, normal banks money launder a lot. That's not a good defense. We, you can't be a little bit pregnant, right? You're like, either you're, you are or you're not. And look, I am here, again, I'm not defending Tether and some of the claims and some of the very real issues with Tether. All I am saying here is 
look. The whole point of Bitcoin, the whole experiment is money is what people believe it to be. Value is what people believe it to be. Why is a Bitcoin $5,300 right now? Why? It's because a bunch of us believe it's valuable, right? And we could talk about you know, philosophy behind that. Money is a myth. It's a collective shared social fiction, a collective shared social psychosis, if you will. But but same thing with Tether. If there are a bunch of traders who want to hold Tether and who don't really care, the question is, once it's in the secondary market, people aren't redeeming Tethers right now. There hasn't been a bank run. Tether dips briefly, but I'm a buyer of Tether when it goes under a dollar. It's irrational. Of- it's not rational because they're saying, they're saying to their holders, to their investors, to their users, this is backed one-to-one. And they've said at various points that it's redeemable. They've often taken that off of their website when they've been having banking issues. But they're saying one thing and the reality is different. And that okay, is what on. is concerning to me. Okay. Let me ask you a question. If Tether changed the branding on their website or the conditions on their website and they said Tether is an unsecured note, would you be okay with that? I would be a lot more okay with that. I would okay. still rail against the price being 99 99- Point eight cents on the dollar, but I would be a lot more okay with that. Okay, would you would you take a short on Tether then? In the case that they rebranded to be a note and blah blah blah, an unsecured note, yeah, and that it was and that sitting at ninety nine point eight cents on the dollar. No, no, to be honest, probably not actually, because I know. So what does that tell you, Joe? That the markets (laughs) can stay irrational much longer than I can stay solvent in crypto. You just proved my point. I can still rail against it being irrational, and I can also still rail against it being unethical as well as illegal, fraudulent to make claims about how it's backed. I think the New York AG can sort out the illegal bit. And by the way, um, we're going to talk about that actually before we go. Because I want to, I want to sort of bring listeners who haven't been following the FUD, uh, the facts or the FUD, if we can debate that into the fold. Why don't you talk about what the New York AG did, and then um, I can give you my take on it. So why don't you lead the way, Jill? All right. So this is uh, this is going to be unbiased. This is just fact right here. Yep. So the New York AG came out this past week with a pretty bonkers report on what's been going on behind the scenes with Bitfinex and Tether. So the first thing that we need to understand about this is that crypto companies have a hell of a time getting banked. Most of the big crypto companies that we know and love in the United States have had to have their VC funds pull every string available to them in order to get them bank accounts. That's what I did professionally for four years and there continue you go. to do. Yes. And it's it's also important to note that even what we consider like the most legitimate companies in the space, or what a lot of people consider to be the most legitimate companies in the space, have had their banking options shrunk over time and even cut off at certain points. So famously, Coinbase lost their banking relationship with Silicon Valley Bank, which is the big bank in the Bay Area that ba- uh, banks all of the big startups. So this is a super complicated issue that no one is immune to. Now, people have come up with really creative solutions to this, including creating their own bank that will bank crypto companies. One of these is called Crypto Capital. Um, Now, crypto capital has been 
has become sort of infamous over the last year or so for being affiliated with a whole host of somewhat sketchy activity, including the whole Quadriga case. Go and Google it if you're not familiar. Um, But they've also banked Bitfinex and Tether. Now, at one point, a little over a year ago, Bitfinex could not make redemptions from crypto capital. Crypto capital made all sorts of excuses to them, but Bitfinex's lawyers became more and more uh, worried about the situation of whether crypto capital actually had the money that Bitfinex needed in order to make redemptions to people who were withdrawing from the exchange. Now, remember, Bitfinex and Tether share some of the same executive team, but they're different companies. They're different entities. Tether is also banked at crypto capital. Okay. Tether and Bitfinex don't just share crypto capital as a bank. They also share another bank called Deltec. So they both have accounts at Deltec and they both have accounts at crypto capital. Now, when Bitfinex was finding itself in somewhat hot water as they were trying to withdraw funds to the moon to the tune of $625 million, again, a little over a year ago, and they were unable to from crypto capital, they, I would say, papered a transaction with Tether Limited, but they didn't actually even have a contract in place around this. But they executed a transaction with Tether Limited, wherein Bitfinex received a credit of $625 million to their bank account at Deltec, from which they could withdraw funds, and they gave to Tether Limited a credit of $625 million to their bank account at Crypto Capital. Now, that sounds all totally fine, maybe, right? Because a dollar should be a dollar should be a dollar. And it's not like Bitfinex suddenly took $625 million from Tether Limited. They just swapped one $625 million at a liquid bank uh, for $625 million at, we'll call it an illiquid bank, because crypto capital wasn't making redemptions. So this solved Bitfinex's short-term issue if they needed capital that they could actually withdraw for their clients. But it created a pretty big problem for Tether, who suddenly had a fake $625 million uh, at effectively what, what Matt Levine has now called uh, a fake bank at crypto capital. Um, you know, we can debate about whether the dollars are fake, whether the bank is fake. Uh, I would suggest going and reading Matt Levine's take on this, which is absolutely okay, hilarious. And hold on. Stuff. What, what yes, did the New York Attorney me. General do? Talk about what the New York Attorney General did. So the New York Attorney General has come out with this report uh, saying that the the transaction that got papered, so eventually you'll recall I just mentioned Tether and Bitfinex did not have a contract in place around this. They went back post facto and papered a contract between the two to make this not be a, a sort of quid pro quo transaction, but rather a line of credit that was established between Bitfinex and Tether during this period. Now, the New York AG is basically calling BS on this. They're saying that this is not real credit, um, that there are all kinds of conflicts of interest going on, and that the tethers that are in the, you know supposedly in the bank account, it's they're not fully backed by U.S. dollars because a the credit line and b it's unclear what's going on with crypto capital. Um, 
Yeah. So, but here's the, here's the key thing to understand. So the New York attorney general and the New York department of financial services have decided to make an example and to be sort of the most regulated and the most um, vigilant when it comes to cryptocurrencies. It started in 2015 when the New York department of financial services under the leadership of Benjamin Lossky implemented something known as the bit license, which imposed a separate and second licensing scheme for anyone touching virtual currencies or doing virtual currency business which was very poorly defined in the state of New York. As a result, the majority of crypto platforms do not serve customers in New York alongside places like Iran, North Korea, and other states that are sanctioned. So that's step one. Um, notably, yeah, Benjamin Lossky. That's left- always my favorite thing on exchange websites where it says, oh, yeah. you may not use this platform if you are in North Korea, Iran, Syria, or the state of New York. <laughs> Exactly. And then the best part is, is that the person who created that law, Benjamin Lasky, left and is now a highly paid consultant to Ripple. I believe he even joined their advisory board and is now starting a crypto fund. So I won't even speak on the ironies of that, but let it be known that the state of New York is a place where people come to make their careers. Politicians come here, they make powerful points, stances against the gaming industry, against the taxi industry, against Uber, against hotels, around the financial services industry, and then they go to the private sector to highly lucrative, high-paying jobs. Okay. So the New York Attorney General last year asked a bunch of exchanges under the leadership of Eric Schneiderman to submit data. As you recall, Eric Schneiderman, days before the report about these exchanges was published, was actually impeached because he was found guilty of domestic violence and uh, rape. So that's interesting point. Um, deeply ironic. But the New York Attorney General has had a long relationship of asking cryptocurrency companies for information. Notably, Jesse Powell, the CEO of Kraken, has railed against the New York AG and said they are basically on a phishing mission to identify as much information about crypto exchanges and how they operate as possible. So the New York Attorney General, in their probe last year, eight exchanges complied with their request. They are Circle, (laughs) Coinbase, Gemini, are you noticing a trend here? They're basically all of sort of the regulated exchanges in the U.S., as they should because they operate in New York. Notably, the exchanges that did not comply included Kraken and Bitfinex, two of the largest entities responsible for tether trading volume in the world. So the New York Attorney General on Thursday issued a subpoena against Tether and Bitfinex. The New York Attorney General wants information. They were not able to get that information. They believe that fraud has been committed in the state of New York against clients, customers in the state of New York. And so they are subpoenaing Tether and Bitfinex. Now note, by the way, if they subpoena these two entities, they can get data on every single one of the counterparties of both Tethers and Bitfinex. Okay, so I just really want people to understand What the New York Attorney General is doing, yes, they may be concerned about fraud or misrepresentation. And we can talk, by the way, about- The New York AG has gotten a lot of things wrong, but in this case, they're doing their jobs. But let me finish my point, Jill, and we can talk about what has happened in financial services and all of the things that have happened with things gone wrong where the New York AG has done nothing, right? Um, What I want to point out here is- The U.S., right, U.S. securities law, there is a reason people don't want to operate in the U.S. There's a reason people don't want to touch New York is because you're playing with fire. And the New York AG has decided that they want information. They want to know what's going on. And so they are going to get it, whether it's this, whether it's something else. And I expect in the coming months, years, this is going to be the big battle. This is about privacy and anonymity, right? And we've talked about this a lot. 
The whole point is that they do not want people to have privacy or anonymity in financial transactions because the U.S. government believes it is its God-given right to monitor and surveil every single transaction that touches a U.S. dollar, a U.S. bank account, a U.S. customer, a U.S. business, anything. That is where power comes from. And so again, look, I'm not saying by any means that Tether did not engage in any of these things of which the New York Attorney General accused it of. That will be determined over time as the facts come out. And I leave that to law enforcement to engage in. I'm not law enforcement. I'm not a regulator. I'm not a politician. What I do think is important here, this is a battle that is partly also being fought about the privacy and anonymity of people who engage in cryptocurrency trading. It is. This is the battle. If you want anonymity, don't use Tether. Don't use exchanges. Don't use, use cryptocurrencies. local bitcoins and then go use use a, a laundering a machine. A, a, like use Monero, use Zcash. Like not not all of these things can be all things to all people. And Tether it, is not being used for anonymity. It's being. This is used- the great contradiction, Jill. This is the great contradiction. Go ahead. If this is if this is about privacy and freedom and economic transactions. We are to have none. And this is the fundamental tension, by the way. It's something we don't talk about in crypto at all. This is what's going on with DEXs and the whole DeFi movement. All of that eventually, if we want it to scale and grow, is going to have to be regulated because organizations and regulators exist. And this is what they do for a living. This is their role in the market. And I'm not criticizing that this is the New York AG's role. I fully understand why they're doing this. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just pointing out the inherent tension here. And this is the inherent tension when Bitcoiners demand audits and proof of reserves and show me the bank accounts. These are things that are fundamentally contradictory. And I just want us to be aware of that because this is the big narrative challenge for crypto. And well, for Bitcoin I, in particular, I, I agree with that. And I think that if you want, if you want to build a Dex, for example, that is not able to be cracked down on in these ways by the New York AG or by other regulatory agencies around the world and law enforcement agencies around the world, then you need to bake that in as a requirement of not only the technology but also your go-to-market strategy. And guess what? Even if you're domiciled in Singapore. If you have an executive team, if you have bank account needs, if you have all of these things, then like you're going to be subject to regulation somewhere at some time. And this is going to happen and you should be ready to meet that regulation when it comes for you. Oh, and by the way, um, this happened to a trader at HSBC who Basically, he touched the U.S. border. He and his family came to the U.S., and when he landed in the U.S., he is arrested and sentenced to, I believe, 14 years in jail for a trade that was cleared by his jurisdictional compliance in Europe. This happens all the time. Anyways, it's just interesting to note, it's one of the many issues because of a lack of coordination, because of a lack of market standards, because of a lack of standard infrastructure. There are things that may be permissible in certain parts of the world. There are interpretations that are very different in certain parts of the world. But this, to me, is one of those fundamental questions. If we care about privacy and freedom, can we have them if digital currencies become part of the legacy financial market. So let's talk about what's happened in the financial market in the past. We'll leave the privacy point aside, but I just wanted to raise it because I think it's an important one. No, but it's valid. 
And let's talk about bank runs, um, bank debt. Let's talk about the financial crisis um, and some of these other things that I know you wanted to point out. Because my least favorite argument from Bitcoiners is banks do this all the time. So when crypto companies do it, it should be fine. So let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this again is the the sort of thing with crypto. Of we're learning all of the lessons of economics, of finance, but just in fast motion here, right? So to me, you know, it's it's been surprising to me that there has not yet been enough fear, uncertainty, and doubt out there around Tether that it's experienced any kind of bank run. And now bank run might not be exactly the right terminology for this. A bank run occurs when all of the depositors at a bank show up at once asking for their cash back. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the sort of intro to this episode, banks are in the business of making out loans, right? They don't they they don't hold all of those deposits on hand at once. Right, they because cash is a, it's a zero interest asset. And because of inflation, um, cash doesn't return anything. If I was a bank or I was an asset manager and someone said, okay, um, here, hold my money, they would fire me if I held cash, right? There needs Absolutely. to be some sort of there needs to be some sort of yield. So banks engage in increasingly higher risk behavior to get yield on dollars, right? That's right. And so a bank run occurs when all the depositors show up and, hey, guess what? The bank doesn't actually have all of the dollars on hand or whatever your currency of choice is to give back to you as a depositor. Um, now, there are ways that the financial system has of dealing with these situations. This is nothing new. Bank runs have occurred throughout history. In the United States today, we have something called FDIC insurance, which is a federal depository institution that will insure depository accounts at um, banks and some brokerages, et cetera. You may recall, if you work in technology, Robinhood claimed to have uh, – federal insurance on some of their brokerage accounts and also to be able to provide a yep. return and all of these things. Really but FDIC, by the way, only goes up to, I believe it's $250,000. Yeah, that's There's right. a limit per account right. per person. So, yep. so none of these systems are perfect, but it's it's a little bit surprising to me that we have not yet seen, call them depositors for the moment, uh, users, investors, whatever it is in Tether, show up en masse at any point to uh, to make withdrawals. Now, whether that is an indication of just the suspension of disbelief or, you know, the, the credence that Tether has among its user base, or whether there's some kind of sort of dark manipulation going on there, maybe not for me to say, but I, I think it's something worth pointing out and investigating here. But, but let me, can I give you my take on this? By all means. Okay. Obviously, I'm just going to anyways, even if you said no. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> so actually, even have you said no to me ever? I wonder. Um, I, I, I love you so. too much, Melton. Oh, I love you too, Jill. Um, but here's the point I want to make, Jill. I think there, there are two separate issues here, right? So actually three separate issues. One is the issue the New York Attorney General is talking about, which is here's what Tether claims. Here's what legally Tether says. When someone signs a contract to turn their US dollars into Tethers, here's what they're signing. Here's what the terms and conditions are. What the New York AG is saying is there is fraud that was committed because the things that are being stated um, in these legal contracts are not factually correct. Right. So there's that issue one, which is misrepresentation and fraud, which is yeah. one issue. Okay. Issue two is 
should Tether have the value it has knowing what we know about Tether? And that fundamentally, right, because Tether is trading in secondary markets, this is not primary market, because Tether is trading in secondary markets, it is sort of at a point where I think its usage in secondary secondary markets has achieved this fundamental utility that far exceeds the concern people have about a bank run. And that may change if Tether suddenly gets delisted from a bunch of platforms and it's no longer the dominant trade pair, then I'm sure the level of confidence people have have in holding a tether will change. But the fact that in reaction to this news that possibly up to one, fully one third of the tether outstanding is not actually backed with collateral had literally no price impact on the secondary market. That to me is a strong indication of the fact that people simply do not care because they perceive the utility value of tether in the secondary market to continue to remain as is uninterrupted. That is bananas though. That is crazy town. Okay, that but- is insane that one third of the collateral backing it could be in the form of basically a credit line in a bogus bank that has no price impact. That's nuts. But Jill, in regular markets, crazier things have happened. Yeah, it's illogical, but crypto markets aren't about rationale and, <laughs> and logic. Look, I Denta coin traded at like what a dollar? Like <laughs> not about logic. Yeah, um, I mean, not for years on end. I, so one other thing I want to say about sorry. price though. The third point though, sorry. One, two, yeah, and then ahead. three, the, the last point I have. So one is about fraud and misrepresentation in the contract. Two is about the utility of this thing in secondary markets. And three and three is, I think, the really critical one, is there is a fundamental problem that Tether is solving. That problem cannot be solved any other way. Any other way. And so I think the deeper question is, why does this thing that is bananas have a $3 billion market cap? Let's examine the reason why. And the reason why, those are not problems that can regulatory be solved. arbitrage. It's not just regulatory arbitrage. It's the fact, it's the whole reason that MasterCoin, which then became Omni, was created. It's the whole reason Tether exists. It's the reason people created ERC-20 tokens. It's the reason DAI exists. It's the reason all of this shit exists is to solve a fundamental problem, which has to do with settlement and clearing, on-chain settlement and clearing. It's why JP Morgan had to create a dollar coin. There's a fundamental market structure problem that is being solved. So that's just all I wanted to say. I think that the debate then becomes, is the utility that Tether is supplying, is that enough to make up for the risk that there is no one-to-one backing? But the question that I would raise around that, the utility that Tether is supplying is directly linked to the one-to-one backing that it claims to have. If that goes away, the utility goes away. That's where we disagree. What I am saying to you, the brief dip in Tether prices after the New York AG subpoena Tether and Bitfinex. It was barely even a dip. I mean, it was a, it was a blip, right? Sentiment about Tether's reserve backing doesn't matter as much to people about the use of it. It's traded in the secondary market. It's not redeemed very often. It has a high velocity. People are exchanging it. Nobody trading in Tether, and most of the people trading in Tether, by the way, are not in the US. They do not care about the New York Attorney General. They do not care about this backing because the secondary market is there. It is highly liquid. It is highly dependable. They fundamentally do not care. They do not apply a liquidity discount to Tether. It's, it's insane. I mean, it's not even it's a reality. discount. It's it's just the the counterparty risk that you're taking on. And this is often hidden, even in the, 
conventional financial system, right? People don't think about the counterparty risk of who they're they think about the counterparty risk of who they're facing on the trade, but they don't think about the counterparty risk of say the issuer or the person, the entity holding the actual collateral. That right. too often does not get priced in. And you know, we saw this explode in 2008 with the financial crisis. It can take a big event, a black swan style event to sure. make people actually wake up and care about this. But let me tell you, when that happens, you do not want to be the person holding the hot potato. Sure. But look, at the end of the day, look at the whole crypto market, right? In the US, mark my words, mark my words, in the US, for the foreseeable future, I do not see physically settled Bitcoin anything touching retail. I do not see it happening. It's all going to be synthetic exposure. There is a fundamental lack of market infrastructure that limits liquidity, exchangeability, tradability, et cetera, ease of use, because the correspondent banking system is fundamentally incompatible. That is a real problem. So again, absolutely. But Tether, I mean, Tether is not. What's the alternative? Tether is the band-aid for that, right? Tether is not solving that at some fundamental level. In order to solve that at a more fundamental level, you would need to overhaul how the entire banking system works. You're not going to solve the fact that it's going to take me three days to ACH into Coinbase. And Tether, by the way, again, provides a band-aid for that, but it's not a real solution because if I am transferring Tether between exchanges, hey, guess what? Maybe that's worth a dollar. Maybe not. Okay. It's not an actual dollar. Right. But not like, what does a dollar represent? So I think these issues are kind of tangled (laughs) together. Every platform in the future will have its own dollar currency. The technical barrier to entry at this point is basically zero, right? And we learned that because of ICOs creating an ERC-20 or a token on top of any other protocol is basically zero. And in fact, every protocol is competing to have dollars and other assets, pardon, issued on top of it by these ICO foundation, like throwing money around, right? So look at Tron throwing money at Tether to create a Tron Tether pair. Uh, Look at, you know, Circle, you know, and Coinbase, they're probably going to get people to onboard to center by promising them something. There is this, this is my hope for Cosmos and or Polkadot, whoever, please come solve this issue. It's clearly a large market and there have got to be better solutions than, than what we've got with Tether. Yeah, but look, every platform, there are zero barriers to entry. If you have a bank account and if you can create the system, creating a dollar token on your platform is easy, right? And then you all you need to do is create exchangeability. And what we're going to see is what we saw in traditional markets. You're going to have your NASDAQ style coalition. You're going to have your NICE style. You're going to have groups of people that come together and create their own clearing and settlement networks where their dollar pegged currencies are exchangeable for one another to solve this fundamental liquidity exchangeability, ease of use, and trust and faith problem. And so to me, Tether was the first in many, many ways. I think what they did was revolutionary. I think in many ways, it was actually really brilliant. I think they paved the way for many, many, many of the innovations that people are working on in crypto now and taking credit saying, oh, we were the first, the first ever. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. This shit has been around for the last five years. That doesn't absolve them from whatever sins they're committing today. We're not talking about their sins. The the last thing that that I want to say in sort of trying to compare Tether to conventional financial markets is uh, this very funny tweet that uh, Goon, I mean Goon, tweeted. 
which is that I believe you're about to invent Glass-Steagall. So there's this issue with what the NYAG has brought to light around Tether and Bitfinex, wherein Tether, which you can think of it in a way as deposits, right? Regardless of how it's used, the idea behind it is that people are cashing into the system. Their cash is being held one-to-one at a bank. Um, And those deposits are now actually being used to uh, rectify the mistakes that an exchange made in this sort of convoluted business environment, right, where they're having to bank with with uh, crypto capital and so on. And so the idea behind Glass-Steagall was to separate retail banks that are taking retail depositors' money and investment banks. And so the idea here was that the retail depositors' money could not be used to rectify that of investment banks. And so there's this kind of hilarious parallel going on here, which, yes, we can, you know, wax wax on about how Tether was the first to do all of these things and so on and so forth. But as you say yourself, and as we say all the time, there's nothing new under the sun. And in many ways here, okay, Tether may have been the first of its kind in terms of smart contracts and so on. But they're making a lot of the mistakes that the old school financial industry has. And but if we're hold on, but if we're talking about Glass Steagall, by the way, there are many other cryptocurrency exchanges. Look at Circle. They they have the same issue. Started at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I right? I believe I acknowledged this earlier. But okay, I'm all not of these things are the same. Worse than anyone else, in that sense, they're worse than other people in a lot of different ways, though. I think we've probably done enough here. We could continue arguing about this. Yeah, and we, we probably, probably will. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this week's episode, look, my only goal here this week was to have a conversation about what the heck a tether is, why it exists, what it does, what's going on with it. As I said before, I am not making any claims or assumptions about the legality, the validity of what is going on. I'm going to I let am. the people who do this professionally do their job. All I'm trying to understand here and all I I am really interested in is looking at the details of what is actually happening, the data of how these things behave in the market. And we'll share this in the Medium post, but I think there are some fundamental reasons why people continue to use Tether despite all of the FUD. And I think it's important to understand why so that we can design, quote unquote, better alternatives that are in fact better. I like it. And I'll let you have the final word on this, Melton, because I feel like I've raged about this enough both to you today <laughs> and also on Twitter in the past. Uh, look, I, I think the, the last point I'll make is this. Um, what we're doing here is we are attempting to solve, and as you actually pointed out, Jill, we're not going to reinvent the entire banking system, right? It's simply not going to happen. Um, or maybe it will. And maybe to me, this is part of the broader question with crypto is, are we rebuilding a digital interconnected financial system the same way that the internet took information silos and localized networks and made them global in scale and reach. This is this is a battle we're fighting. We're in the very early stages as we're going through that process. Really what we're trying to do is take analogs from the legacy finance world and re-implement them on this new 
substrate, this new tool, um, this new sort of technology. Um, and along with it, it's not just a technology problem, right? Anyone can create an issue, a dollar stablecoin. Anyone can. I fundamentally believe the barriers to entry are zero. It's not a technology problem. It is about regulation. It is about your operational capabilities. It's about your banking relationships. It's about your backers. It's about the faith that people have in the credit worthiness of your institution. It's a fundamentally different problem. It's not a technology problem. And so I I think again over time it will be interesting to see where the market flows. Where do people choose to trade? Where do people choose to accept the validity of these stable coins? Where do we see actual usage and high velocity in these things? I don't have those answers. I certainly have some of my thoughts, which I've shared. I think in the US, we have a very Puritan approach sometimes to things. And by no means am I advocating against regulation. I myself am a regulated entity. I'm registered with FINRA. I do all of these things because I operate in a market where those things must be done. And that's what I am representing and holding myself out to be. And so I comply. But I think it's important to understand that the rest of the world is a very different story. And some of the projects that people talk about, like UMA, which you mentioned, Jill, which are trying to provide access in places where it hasn't existed before, they're going to butt up against some of these issues. And so again, I look at this sort of in a less um, Puritan way where it's about, you know, trying to find fraud and trying to create FUD, but let's look at it. Okay, why do these problems exist? Why are people resorting to this? I'm sure there are things that we're going to find out that will very clearly define where fraud was and was not committed. But I think, again, I'm approaching this from a more but why perspective, right? All right. And we'll leave it there for today. And in the meantime, we'll see if... uh Bitfinex comes up with their own general custer to go out and hunt for gold in the hills. To <laughs> long may, people. long may Tether live. Tether is dead. Tether, Tether is alive. Who knows? Um, I'm sure we'll have this conversation a year again. Tether obituaries. I love it. <laughs> All right. See you guys next week. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please. Hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, Celsius Network. As a reminder, head over to Celsius and use the code GEARS when signing up to get free Bitcoin when you deposit more than $500. All right, gang, one final reminder to check out Consensus Coindesk's annual event. Here's what you can expect. You can get involved in a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for $30,000 in cash prizes. And us. So get your tickets today since last year's event sold out. Just go to consensus2019.com and don't forget to use Gears 300 so they know we sent you. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends, or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.